Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you're with us. As uh, we just read, we will be in Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. We've been walking through the, uh, the book of Romans, and so last week we finished out chapter 10, and, uh, and so this week we will begin in chapter 11. And so as you turn there in your Bible or on your device or whatever it might be, I want to tell you uh, a little story. And so my daughter, uh, just the cutest thing, her name's Larkin, she's about two and a half years old, and she loves playing hide-and-go-seek. I've, t- uh, I've mentioned this before, what kid doesn't love playing hide-and-go-seek, although she puts her own little spin on the game because she wants me uh, to go hide with her in which case there's no one actually seeking us. And so instead of playing hide-and-go-seek, we're just kind of playing hide-and-go-hide. And, uh, and so this is our game, but she loves it. She squeals with delight, and, uh, and so I absolutely love it uh, because she loves it, and, uh, and so it brings me such joy. I remember growing up as a kid, and I loved playing hide-and-go-seek or any variant of it, whether it's capture the flag or sardines. If you're familiar with sardines, it's kind of hide-and-go-seek in reverse. Instead of, uh, instead of one person trying to find all everybody else, um, there is uh, one person who is hiding, and then everybody else is looking for that one person. And then whenever someone finds them, they hide with them. And then someone else finds them, and they hide with them until everyone is hiding there except for the one person who is the last person. And, uh, and so uh, I've learned a couple of things about playing uh, sardines, just uh, some wisdom to throw on you, because I'm sure all of you are going to go home and play sardines. And, uh, and so one thing that you need is you need a hiding spot that's big enough for the entire group. And, uh, and so oftentimes you would be playing with somebody and you would find that they found this spot that was perfect for them, but the moment anyone tried to hide with them, there was no room. So they'd hide up in a tree and only one other person could fit up there. And so pretty soon everyone else is just kind of gathered around the tree and the game's over because everyone could j- just instantly find you. A second thing you need is you need really people who are committed to winning. And, uh, and so uh, in particular, introverts make the best at this game, right? They can just stay by themselves for hours. Like if Zach were to try to play and he was hiding, 15 seconds, he's breaking out in a cold sweat. He wants to tell somebody about beard oil or something like that. And uh, so that's the second thing you need. The third thing you need is you need other people who are also committed uh, to winning. The very worst thing is that you're hiding in your spot for like hours and you're thinking, man, I am the very best at this. And come to find out everyone else is inside drinking Kool-Aid and eating cake or whatever it might be because they've long since given up in the game. So these are some uh, little tricks of the trade, little hints to uh, help you next time you play sardines. When I was a, uh, at my former church, I was the middle school director when I was 25 years old. And, uh, and so there was one uh, day that we were having this youth event, and so we decided to play sardines. Now, the church had this rule that was that uh, if you're an adult, you couldn't be alone with kids. That's a good rule. We have that rule uh, here at Parkway as well. And so I decided that the way that I was going to still be able to play the game, but also follow this wise rule, is that I was going to hide where no middle schooler could possibly go, and that is up on the roof. And so I climbed up on the roof, and, uh, and I just hid up there, and I just watched these middle schoolers just running around the parking lot, uh, and, uh, and, and never once did anyone think, maybe Jeff is up on the roof. And, uh, and so thankfully, the average middle schooler's attention span is like five minutes. No offense to you if you're a middle schooler and you are still paying attention. 
And, uh, and so uh, the game didn't last that long before everybody is just, I'm looking down at them and everyone is just kind of sitting around in a circle and just screaming that, uh, that they quit. The reason that I mention this is because our passage this morning is kind of like uh, this game of sardines or this game of, uh, of hide-and-go-seek. So imagine, if you will, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is up on a roof and he is looking down at his fellow uh, Israelites. He's looking down at this mass of Israel just wandering around the parking lot and Paul is wondering, why aren't they on the roof with me? Why aren't they on the roof with God? And throughout chapter 10, as we were looking at that, we saw two answers, two ways that we could answer the question. First was that Israel was looking for love in all of the wrong places. Rather than the roof, they're looking in the parking lot. They're looking to the law for righteousness rather than looking to Christ for righteousness. So that's the first way that you can answer the question, that they're looking in the wrong place. Instead of looking at Christ, looking upon Christ, they're looking to the law as their source for righteousness. The second way that chapter 10 answers the question is that they're looking in the wrong way. Not only are they looking in the, in the wrong place, but they're also looking in the, uh, in the wrong uh, way. Rather than looking and listening with their ears and their eyes, they're attempting to use maybe their sense of touch or their sense of smell or something like that. In other words, rather than pursuing righteousness by faith, they were attempting to pursue it by law. And as a result, in Paul's day, Israel by and large is lost. They're wandering aimlessly about the parking lot. So then chapter 11 comes and he asks the question, what now? Is the game over? Is that all there is? Has God rejected his people completely and permanently? That's what Romans uh, 11, 1 through 10 is about. So I want to pray for our time together and then we will dig in. As I often do, I, I want to ask you first just to pray for yourself, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning and a heart that is desperate to hear from Him through His Word. And then would you pray that uh, for others as well? Would you pray that for uh, your spouse or for your kids or for um, uh, strangers that are around you, just for Parkway in general, that we would hear the Word of the Lord this morning? And then would you pray for me that I would be faithful and bold in the proclamation of this word? So, Father, we uh, confess that our, our message this morning is hard. It's a hard word with hard concepts like election and divine hardening, and yet uh, these hard truths are uh, often the most helpful for us uh, in hard times. And your word promises grace to those of us who deeply and humbly uh, consider your word. And so we ask for help this morning, that you would help us not only to understand, but to appreciate, to treasure our text this morning. We ask because we know that you're a good father who delights to give good gifts. And so we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, verse 1 of chapter 11, where Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So as I mentioned before, the people in uh, Paul's day, the people of Israel, largely had rejected the gospel. 
not universally, as we'll see, but a large percentage had stumbled over the, the stumbling block or the stumbling stone or the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. And so as a result, the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. They've been welcomed uh, into relationship with God, which was, by the way, uh, God's uh, eternal purpose and plan for the gospel to go out to the entire world. The, the plan was never for all of God's focus and energy and attention and love to just be set on the ethnic people of Israel. God's plan and heart was always for the whole world, and, and so uh, Israel, by and large, is blinded to the reality of the gospel, so the uh, gospel goes out to the world. But then you might ask the question, does this mean that God has rejected Israel? Does this mean that God is simply done with the ethnic people of Israel? In other words, we're reaching the resolution of a concern that was brought up all the way back in chapter 9, and that is if Israel truly is the chosen people, if they truly are the elect people, then why are so many not believing the gospel? Has the word of God failed, as chapter 9 will ask? Has God rejected Israel, as, uh, as chapter 11 will ask? And to begin to answer that, we need to know what we mean whenever we say the word Israel. Now, that seems really simple for us until we understand, until we realize that the term Israel itself is used in at least six different ways in Scripture, depending on the context. So, sometimes when you're reading the New Testament in particular and you come across the word Israel, sometimes it's referring there to every single Jewish person, every single person who is ethnically Jewish. That's one way it's used. Sometimes it refers to the corporate nation as a whole. Sometimes it refers to the patriarch, uh, patriarch Jacob. Uh, some of you know the, the fact that Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. So sometimes it's just talking about one particular person. Sometimes it refers to the righteous remnant of all Jewish believers. Sometimes it refers to Jews and Gentiles together in this corporate reality that we call the church. It can even refer to Jesus himself. He is the true Israel. Like Israel, he's tested in the wilderness. Like Israel has 12 tribes, Jesus has 12 disciples. He inaugurates a new law and a new covenant and so forth uh, and so on. So in light of the flexibility of this term Israel, we read in, uh, in Romans chapter 9 that not all uh, who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, in a sense... You can be an Israelite and not be an Israelite. And this isn't a contradiction, just like it isn't a contradiction when we speak of God's threeness and His oneness, because we mean something different by each of those words. God is three persons. He is one being, one essence. So those aren't contradictory. Likewise, when we say that not all Israel is Israel, we're not contradicting ourselves because we're using the word Israel in a different way in, uh, in each particular use. And all of this is really important for us because towards the end of the chapter, we're going to read a little phrase that's going to say, all Israel will be saved. We're going to come across that in a few weeks. So you can see how confusing it can be to read that phrase, all Israel will be saved, how confusing that can be if we don't understand what he means by Israel. Does he simply mean the church? Does he mean every single Jew is going to be saved? 
Does he just refer to the righteous remnant? If God rejects some Jews, then how can Paul write how uh, that all Israel is saved? Now, we're going to get to that in a few weeks, but for now, I think it's easiest to follow Paul's train of thought here in our text this morning by reading the verse and, uh, and asking the question, has God rejected every single Jew? I think that's what he means here whenever he says his people. I ask then, has God rejected every single Jew? I think that's what he means here in this particular context. And then as we move through the chapter, he's going to clarify and kind of narrow his concern. And, uh, and so we'll see that as the chapter progresses. So the, uh, Paul begins with this question, has God rejected every Jew? And we have to begin by saying, well, certainly he has rejected some. It's really common in theological, uh, theologically liberal circles to conclude that there are at least two different ways toward God. You have Christians who kind of get in through Christ, and then you have Jews who kind of get in through their Jewishness. That is not at all what the New Testament is going uh, to teach. We have seen over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Romans that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. Paul doesn't pull any punches whatsoever in saying that his fellow kinsmen, his fellow Jews, are absolutely condemned if they do not trust in the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, in light of this, in light of the fact that some Jews are condemned, some Jews, some people who are ethnically Jewish, are rejected by God? Should we swing the pendulum all the way over here and say that God has washed His hands of Israel completely? That Israel rejected God, so God rejects Israel, that they're done and no more? That's what some might conclude. They swing the pendulum all the way uh, over here. That God took His sort of big election eraser and erases all ethnic Jews from His blackboard of blessing. Well, Paul's going to say, of course not. He's going to avoid the idea both that all Jews are rejected and also that all Jews are accepted, and instead he's going to point to this reality of a remnant. And to prove this, he begins with himself as an example. He asks, has God rejected his people? And he says, of course not, for Paul himself is a Jew. In fact, he loves his uh, fellow Israelites so much that in chapter 7, he said that he could wish that he himself were accursed, cut off from Christ. He has unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart at the fact that his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, are cut off from Christ. So uh, Paul is no anti-Semite. He himself is a Jew, and that proves that God has not rejected every Israelite. Paul's a redeemed Israelite, and that fact proves that God hasn't completely forsaken every Jew. In other words, Paul himself is up on the roof with God looking down on the mass of Israel. And by the way, he isn't the one exception to the rule. Instead, he's an example of a pattern and a principle that we see throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament in particular, of this idea of a remnant. So let's look at the next passage, and we'll see how he fleshes that out. Verses uh, 2 through 4, he writes, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they, have, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. So here's where Paul's proof really begins to take off as this principle that he will explain in these passages helps to uh, interpret his own experience as a redeemed uh, Israelite. And he begins by saying, God has not rejected his people. Now, that phrase is really familiar. If you're a first century uh, Jew steeped in the Old Testament, that phrase is really uh, familiar because it's found in a number of places throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you one example of that. 1 Samuel 12, 22. I think we'll put it up on the screen. It says, For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. This is just one example. I could give a couple of other examples of places uh, like this, but the wording of this passage in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the wording of this passage in the Septuagint is almost the exact same as our passage this morning. It's nearly identical. And the context of this passage is really important as well. And if you're a first century Jew, you would have thought through uh, this lens of this context. Look at 1 Samuel 12, 17. Is not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. Listen to this. What you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. The context here in 1 Samuel is that Israel has rejected God as their divine king. They ask for a human king, yet God has not forsaken them. They've rejected God, they've forsaken God, yet God has not rejected or forsaken them. Well, likewise, think about what is Israel doing in Paul's day? They're rejecting God as their king. They are rejecting their Messiah. They are rejecting the Christ. They are rejecting Jesus. The exact same thing, and yet God never rejects. God never forsakes His people. But then we have to ask this question, who are His people? That's the question that Israel should have been asking. They believed that they were his people on the basis of ethnicity. But Paul has said throughout this section of Scripture, Romans 9 through 11, that uh, being a part of God's people is not a matter of ethnicity. It's a matter of election. And so Paul adds this qualifier that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. We've talked about foreknowledge quite a bit before. We've uh, encountered it in uh, Romans 8 in particular, and then we've talked about it in theological equipping. But it's one of the most important and yet at the same time most misunderstood words in New Testament theology. Here's what a lot of people think whenever they think of the word foreknowledge. They simply think that it means that God knows the future. So God knows who will and will not freely choose Him, and so He elects on the basis of what He knows we will do. He elects on the basis of, he elects those who he knows will freely choose him. The problem is that's not what the word foreknowledge means in the New Testament. We know that for a few reasons. We've talked about these before. First, consider the context. Consider what Paul is saying here. God isn't saying, I haven't rejected those whom I foreknew wouldn't reject me. 
Remember, because Paul himself is an example of this principle. And yet, what do we know from Paul's life? Paul has rejected Christ. He was a persecutor of the church. He approved of the murder of saints. And yet, God shows him mercy. In addition to that, consider the language of the text. God says, I have kept for myself. In other words, God is the one who is taking the initiative. God's work in salvation is proactive and not reactive. Second, in addition to the context, consider the meaning of the word no. In Scripture, uh, whenever the, the, the Bible is going to use the word no, it means a lot more than just cognitive sort of head knowledge or understanding. For example, when the Bible says that Abraham knew Sarah, we know that it doesn't simply mean that he knew her favorite color or her favorite song or whatever it might be. It's a term of intimacy. Likewise, as we begin to approach Christmas and you're reading through the nativity story and you read in there that Mary had never known a man, that doesn't mean she grew up on Wonder Woman Island. She'd never met a man before in her entire life. She didn't even know Joseph, who she's betrothed to. She didn't know her father. She didn't know brothers, anything like that. That's not what it means. It's, again, it's a term of intimacy. Or whenever God says of Israel, he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. It's not like he looks at Egypt and goes, oops, I apologize. I forgot you were there. I had no idea. That's not what it means. It means you only have I loved. You only have I chosen. You only have I ordained. That's what it means for God to foreknow. It means that before time, he loved you. Before time, he chose you. Before time, he ordained that he would set his electing grace upon you. That's what it means to be foreknown. So in, uh, one last reason for rejecting the idea that God's foreknowledge simply means that he knows who will and will not choose him is that we've already seen as we've looked at the book of Romans that no one chooses him. Romans 3 no one understand. No one seeks for God. No, not one. No, not one. If God simply looks down the corridor of time, if He gets into His DeLorean time machine and uh, travels to the future after He hits 88 miles per hour, and He looks and He says, I'm going to choose everybody that's going to choose me, God is going to be lonely for all eternity because no one chooses God independently. So God hasn't rejected those whom He foreknew because those whom He foreknows, He foreloves. And thus He predestines and calls to Himself as we saw in Romans 8, 28 through 30. So Paul's point is that in his own salvation experience and the salvation of countless other Jews, if you remember, the the early church is initially entirely Jewish. In this, there is this uh, principle of a remnant proving that God has not rejected His people. And this idea of a remnant is found even in the Old Testament itself. In other words, in creating and in keeping a remnant people, God isn't doing some sort of new thing. This is something He has always done. And as proof, Paul is going to quote from 1 Kings 19 in the story of Elijah. If you don't recall, let me just uh, summarize it for you. At this time, there is both a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of, uh, of Judah. And the northern kingdom is ruled by a wicked king, as the northern kingdom was always ruled 
by a wicked king. The, the southern kingdom, you had good kings and you had bad kings, and it kind of oscillated between uh, the two. But in the northern kingdom, you only have uh, evil and wicked kings. And so at this particular time, the, d- the days of Elijah, you have a king named Ahab who is ruling. And he's married to a real Jezebel named Jezebel. That's where we get that uh, term. And uh, they're like the celebrity couple of their day. They're, they're the ancient Romeo and Juliet or Bonnie and Clyde or Kanye and Kim or Bieber and Gomez or something. They're like the ultimate sort of power couple for false worship, for idolatry. They loved bell worship. They love bell worship more than Dr. Steve loves teeth, more than Dan Jones loves cargo shorts, more than uh, Tim loves interrupting me when I'm trying to work on a sermon. In other words, they really, really love uh, bell worship and, uh, and idolatry. And so in 1 Kings 18, we see this sort of prophet death match. In one corner, you have these hundreds of prophets of Baal or Baal. And uh, in the other corner, you have Elijah, and he's all by himself. But Elijah loves and trusts Yahweh and not Baal. And so Elijah wins. He actually puts all of these false prophets uh, to death. Go back and read the story. It's one of the best stories in, uh, in the Old Testament with Elijah taunting the prophets of Baal with sarcasm and mockery and all the kinds of things that 21st century church culture would say are inappropriate for a uh, preacher to do, even though it's throughout the entire Bible. So Elijah is going to score this major victory. But then Ahab's feelings are hurt because he loves Baal so much And all of his prophets now have been put to death. And so uh, he runs home and he cries and he tells Jezebel. And she says she's going to make it all better by killing Elijah. So in this really strange turn of events for this guy who's just uh, beaten and beheaded hundreds of false prophets, Elijah gets scared. He gets scared at the idea that Jezebel is now gunning for him. And so he goes into hiding and he throws a little pity party. And he says, everybody's doing it. Everybody's worshiping Baal. I'm the only one out there who's faithful. Woe is me. And God responds to him in the wilderness and says, not so fast. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's the Old Testament example of this remnant that Paul is going to talk about. So we'll see the application in uh, in the next two verses, verses 5 through 6. Paul writes, so too, at the, re- at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So even though the majority of Israel in Elijah's day was apostate, God was still faithful, and he kept a faithful remnant for himself. Likewise, with the situation in Paul's day, And in our day, too, we might add, at the present time here, it doesn't refer to 21st century, at the present time refers to the first century when Paul is writing this, but this is a principle we see even today. For example, about 54% of Jews living in Israel today consider themselves non-religious. That number shoots up to about 75% of American Jews consider themselves non-religious. A significant percentage of them even consider themselves to be atheists. And yet today, there are faithful Jews who follow Christ. In other words, there is a remnant. But that remnant isn't a result or isn't by virtue of their ethnicity or their faithfulness. 
but rather by God's election and God's faithfulness. That's what it means to be chosen by grace here. This Greek word that's translated as, uh, as chosen, it means elected. In fact, of all of the uses in the New Testament, about half of the time it uses the words chose or chosen, and half the times it use, uh, uses the word uh, elect. To elect means to choose, and to choose means to elect. Those things are uh, synonymous. They are interchangeable. You might wonder why it is that we at Parkway seem to make such a big deal out of election or predestination. We've had people who have actually left the church because we make such a big deal about uh, election or predestination. And they don't like that we talk about it. And that's kind of funny considering that nobody ever wonders why or complains why or when we make such a big deal out of grace. But according to this passage, election is grace. In fact, Reformed theology historically has been known as the doctrines of grace. Election is grace. He says that we're chosen by grace. We're elected by grace. In other words, your capacity to grasp, to understand, to fully appreciate the height and depth and length and width of God's grace is somehow tethered to your understanding of election or predestination so that's the answer to the question. Why do we make such a big deal out of election? Because we make such a big deal out of grace. And grace is election. And election is grace. Grace. The remnant, the elect, the chosen, they exist not because they're smarter, not because they're wiser, not because they just made the right choice in exercising their own free will, not because they are of above average spiritual perception, but simply and solely because God chose them. God was merciful to them. God was gracious to them. Think back, if you will, to my example of playing sardines. And let's imagine that it's utterly impossible for these kids to find me. Let's say that they're blindfolded so that they can't see me, like playing uh, Marco Polo, but without the pool and the uh, inevitable cheating that goes on in that game. Now imagine, if you will, that I come down from the roof and I remove the blindfold from a few of them. And then I take them by the hand and I help them up on the roof. That is the image of election. You see, if you introduce any condition into this election equation, then grace is no longer grace. If God chose you because you're better, grace is no longer grace. If God chose you because you uh, believed, grace is no longer grace. If God chose you because you were going to believe, He looked down the corridors of time and elected those whom He knew would freely choose Him, then grace is no longer grace. If any of that is the case, then grace is no longer grace. It's something else. It's some mixture of God's stuff and man's stuff. But we aren't saved by a mixture of God's stuff and man's stuff. We're saved by pure and unadulterated grace. Grace must be absolutely free and unconditional or it isn't grace. This is why we are passionately and, unapolog and unapologetically reformed and why we emphasize election because without it, grace is distorted. It's obscured. And I want you to have absolutely nothing in which to boast except the grace of God, not your upbringing, not your faith, not your good deeds, 
nothing but grace and grace alone. Some of you uh, are familiar with the fact that grace alone was this battle cry of the Reformation, which said sola fide, by faith alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, solus Christus, by Christ alone, sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, and sola gratia, grace alone. It's no coincidence that in the same period of time where there is this recovery of justification by grace, the same period of time where there is this uh, justification by faith, the same period of time where there is this recovery of salvation by grace, that there is also this recovery of this idea of the sovereignty of God in election and predestination among the Reformers. The Reformation wouldn't have happened had Erasmus or Arminius been the leaders of it, or if Luther or Calvin or Zwingli had not boasted in God's free and sovereign grace and predestination and election. Let's go back to the text. Last section, verses 7 through 10. What then Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, lest their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. We begin with something that's really interesting and that it says that Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. But earlier I mentioned Romans 3, which says that no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. No, not once. There must be a way in which they were seeking and also a way in which they're not seeking. Again, it's not a contradiction because he's talking about different things in different contexts. I think another illustration might help. Imagine again this big sardines game, and again you're wearing a blindfold, and God calls out from the roof. But imagine now that Israel has decided to plug their ears so that it cannot hear. What they're doing is saying in that moment, I don't need your help. I don't want any hints whatsoever. I want to find you on my own. Rather than seeking by faith, they decided to pursue it by works, as we saw in chapter 9. So they're seeking. There's no sense in which they're not seeking. They're not seeking in the way in which they are to seek because they've closed their ears to not hear from God. But for the elect, God unplugs their ears so that they can hear. And he removes the blindfolds so that they can see. That's the remnant that's chosen by grace. But then Paul says, but what of the rest? And he says that they're hardening. They're hardened. Now, hardening is a concept that we might be tempted to just kind of skip over. If the goal of, uh, of preaching is just simply scratching whatever you think itches, then there's no place for hardening. But fortunately, that isn't the goal of preaching. The goal is to proclaim the full counsel of God, which includes things, even hard things, like hardening. By the way, if this is an unfamiliar concept to you, then that means one of two things. Either, one, you are an unbeliever, or are you a new believer, or two, it means that you have been in churches that have failed you because they've simply preached things, sugar and spice and everything nice, and refused to deal with the harder things in Scripture. A pastor's job, a church's job, isn't just to entertain you. It's to engage you, to equip you, to edify you, even with the harder things of the full counsel of God, especially the harder things, because the hard stuff is what you need when life gets hard. 
Hard times demand hard truths. And so imagine, if you will, imagine a drill sergeant in the armed forces who just lets his recruits wake up whenever they want and then says, what do you want to do today? Are those recruits at all going to be prepared for war? Absolutely not. Or imagine a parent who simply says to their kids, eat whatever you want, wear whatever you want, do whatever you want. I'm going to give you no constructive criticism whatsoever. Is that a good and loving parent? Absolutely not. So likewise, when we come to these hard texts in Scripture, it is our duty, it's our responsibility to proclaim them, to explain them for your edification and for your uh, sanctification. So if your worldview doesn't have room for this reality that God hardens, then that means we need to get a new worldview. In chapter 9, Paul mentioned the hardening of Pharaoh. We talked about it a little bit there. And he said that this example, the example of the hardening of Pharaoh, is an example of a universal pattern and principle in which God has mercy on some and God hardens others. That's the language there in Romans 9. He has mercy on some and he hardens others. So we might ask the question, what is hardening? Well, see how it's described here in this passage in Romans 11, 7 through 10. It talks about eyes that won't see. It talks about ears that won't hear. It talks about a spirit of stupor or slumber. You know how you feel when your leg is asleep? You're kind of dragging it around like you're some wounded Revolutionary War veteran or something like that. And you have to tell everyone around you that your leg is asleep because you look like an absolute fool. All right? That's kind of the idea uh, of, uh, of this hardening. It's, it's this uh, inability to, uh, to perceive rightly. It's like being spiritually drunk or spiritually numb, unable to perceive or to think or to feel correctly. That's what divine hardening entails. And notice that it says this is something that God does. It says here in the text that God gives a spirit of stupor. Again, Paul doesn't pull any punches whatsoever when it comes to hardening and the role of God. God stands supremely sovereign over hardening. Now, at the same time, Scripture is going to maintain that God's sovereignty doesn't in any way negate man's responsibility. Hardening helps explain unbelief. It never excuses unbelief. Man is morally responsible for his sin. Man is morally guilty for his sin, even as he is hardened by God. How that's true, how that's just, how that's good isn't fully explained. There's a bit of a mystery uh, in Scripture. I'm not telling you you have to fully understand it, but I am saying it is what the Scripture says, and so I'm charging you, you have to believe it. You have to hold these two things, even if you can't understand how they can both be true, they are true, that God is absolutely and utterly sovereign, and there is no limit or restriction to His sovereignty, and man is absolutely and utterly responsible for his sin. Now, first century Jews had no problem with the idea that God hardened Pharaoh. They had no problem with the idea that God hardens the nations in general. But the problem is that Paul isn't talking about God hardening Gentiles. He's talking about God hardening Jews. He knows he's on thin ice with the idea that God hardens Jews, and so he goes to the very center of Jewish identity. He goes to the Old Testament, and he demonstrates that hardening is found even there in the Old Testament. Again, this isn't something novel. 
God has always operated by this principle. Has God has always elected? God has always had a remnant. God has always hardened. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, and Psalm 69 to show that the idea of God hardening Israel should not be surprising. Now, you might remember back in Romans 9, we talked about the fact that Paul quoted from the patriarchs and from the law and from the prophets to show that election is this holistic thing that occurs throughout Scripture. It's not just an isolated example. We does something similar here with Deuteronomy 29, Isaiah 29, and Psalm 69. You might have noticed Deuteronomy 29, that's from the law. Isaiah 29, that is from uh, the prophets. In Psalm 69, that's from the wisdom literature. In other words, it's all over the place. Every type or genre of Scripture, every uh, nook and cranny of Scripture. And not only are all of these texts about hardening, but they're also all about the hardening of Israel. That's why he reaches for these texts in particular and doesn't just simply go back to the hardening of Pharaoh. He goes to the hardening of Israelites because that's the context. Even in the Old Testament, we see that God hardens not just the Pharaohs and the Gentiles of the world, but even Jews. So now we've kind of dissected the passage. Let's kind of put it back together by way of recap, and then we'll see what we can pull out of it by way of application. We begin with the context that the Israel of Paul's day is by and large an obstinate people. We saw that last week in uh, 1021. So we might be tempted to think that God has rejected his people. But obviously we would be wrong with that as evidenced by Paul himself, who was a justified Jew. Not only that, but Paul is a pattern for the more general principle that God elects a remnant, as he did even in Elijah's day. And that remnant is uh, chosen uh, solely by grace. And if only a remnant is saved, then that must mean that the rest are hardened. And that's in line with what we see in the Old Testament Scripture where God is said to harden Israel. That's what Romans 11, 1 through 10 is about in summary. So what do we do with it? It's kind of a strange passage because it's about God's dealing with ethnic Jews. And given that Parkway isn't really overflowing with ethnic Jews, this really isn't our context. But Scripture is inspired and authoritative and profitable. All of it is. And so it's nonetheless profoundly important and relevant to us. And so here are just a few things that we can take away as far as implications or applications of the text as we conclude. The first thing that I think that this passage does, uh, does for us is it encourages us, it charges us, it commands us to marvel, to simply behold and marvel. We come to the text naturally through our lenses, through our presuppositions of 21st century American Christianity, and we naturally ask the question, what do we do with it? We want to do, we want to work, we want to apply, we want to act, but oftentimes the only thing that we are called to do is simply to listen and to see and to consider. Scripture is first and foremost about what God has done and only secondarily about what we are to do. There are certainly applications of this text, but one of the first application of the text is not to do anything at all, but simply to listen and to hear and to believe. It's not simply about what you are to do, but what God has done and is doing. So that's the first thing that we are to marvel. The second thing that we are to do is to be humbled. This whole passage is dripping with the grace and mercy of God. 
but for the grace of God, this is us. But for the grace of God, we are these hardened sinners. Maybe you don't like the whole election and hardening thing. If so, I would offer the fact that that means you don't really understand the whole election and hardening thing. You don't understand that you absolutely and utterly deserve wrath. You absolutely and utterly deserve hardening. You absolutely and utterly deserve judgment. You think somehow that your election is on the basis because you're better. You merited it somehow. And this passage should humble us. The reason that the hardened are hardened is not because they're worse than you. And the reason that the elect are elected is not because they are any better. So it should humble us. The third thing it should do is it should encourage us to pray for hardened sinners. Election isn't expounded in Scripture to evidence why people can't be saved. It's given to show us how they can be saved, how those who do not seek for God can seek for God because their heart is regenerated, because God has elected them to saving faith. By sheer grace and mercy, God overcomes our resistance. So would you consider, even right now, would you consider the most obstinate person that you know? Not the most hard-headed person, the most spiritually stubborn person that you know. The person that you had Thanksgiving dinner with, your crazy uncle who curses Christians. Your neighbor or your coworker who is Mormon or Muslim or Hindu or whatever it might be. Would you think of them and how resistant and apathetic they are to the gospel? And would you think through the lens of Paul as a persecutor of the church and God regenerates him? And would you ask God to do the same work? The reality of election means that no one is beyond the grasp and grip of God's grace and mercy. And the last thing that this would encourage us to do is to trust God, that He keeps His Word. We've seen this theme come up over and over again in Romans 9 through 11. That's the point of this entire section of the book of Romans, that we can trust all the promises of Romans 8 and beyond Maybe you're sitting through this sermon and you're wondering, what does this have to do with me? Why does this matter? Well, first it matters because God says it, and everything God says matters. He doesn't simply say things that are uh, superfluous. But even on a personal level, consider this. If God's word to Israel fails, then maybe God's word to you will fail. If God's promises to His people fail, then maybe His promises to you will fail. If God rejects His people, then what hope do we have as His people? You see, the very faithfulness of God is at stake in this passage. So this morning, may we marvel, may we be humbled, may we pray for those that we know that don't love and trust Christ, and may we trust and rest in the faithfulness of God. Let's pray as we prepare to take communion. Father, may we marvel at Your grace and mercy this morning. May we behold and believe in Your sovereignty, Your grace, Your holiness, Your faithfulness, Your glory, as You have given Your people eyes to see and ears to hear and to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Your Son. Would You give us hearts to receive the offensive, the countercultural message of hardening 
and election? Would you make us a people who are humble and contrite and who boast only in grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of your name alone? We pray all these things because you are good and you do good. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.